Hello, everyone. Today we're joined by Micah Star Liberty from the Liberty Law Firm in Oakland. Uh, Micah's a graduate of the UCLA undergrad, University of California Hastings Law School, and she's received numerous awards, including the 2015 Consumer Attorneys Street Fighter Lawyer of the Year, one of the top women lawyers in the country, and she's the president-elect of the Consumer Attorneys of California. Micah, great to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Wonderful to join you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. First thing I want to ask you is how did you get a name like Micah Star Liberty? <laughs> you can only get a name like Micah Star Liberty if you have hippie parents. So I was born in a communal building in the Haight-Ashbury in the 70s, and my parents thought of the most creative name they could. Liberty's our proper surname, but the rest is all their imagination. What about Micah? Where does that come from? It's biblical, but of course they changed the spelling and the spelling that they chose is actually Nordic. But Micah exists in Greek and Hebrew, Japanese, German, and then Scandinavia. Okay, so what was it that drew you to the law? Well, I feel like I've always had maybe a hyperactive sense of justice. I remember as a kid, we did a camp program. I went to a performing arts school for dance and we went to sixth grade camp and there were some children who didn't have guns to go to sixth grade camp. And I remember being completely outraged by that and trying to get everyone together to raise money so the whole class could go to camp together and no one would be excluded. So I've always had a sense of inclusion and fighting for folks who, who can't quite help themselves. Once you decided to go to law school, you went in San Francisco. Did you work while you were in law school? I did. I worked at a well-known plaintiff's firm the entire time, and um, it was a wonderful experience. And frankly, it kept me in law school because I found sitting in those lectures to be quite boring and loved going to work so I could put what I was learning into practice and see the end result. So actually, you went to the Hastings Law School. It's probably not too far from where you were born. <laughs> it's true. I was actually born at the corner of Grove and Ashbury, and Hastings is about a block from Grove Street. So, yeah, so you didn't go too far, but <laughs> you've moved across the bay now, and your office is in Oakland now. Is that right? That's right. In 2010, I moved my office to Oakland. When did you decide that you wanted to open up your own law firm? Well, it was probably a little earlier than uh, most and a little earlier than perhaps it should have been, but I was chomping at the bit. I was four years into my practice and I felt like I wasn't getting the mentoring that I needed and I wasn't able to take the type of cases I wanted to take or work them up the way I wanted to work them up. So I worked out on my own in 2015. And how would you say it's been for you? I haven't looked back. You know, honestly, I remember when I first opened, I thought, I'm going to have to check the phone to see if there's a dial tone because it would never ring. I just assumed I'd be sitting there bored. And I started and immediately got hired to try a couple cases for a lawyer in San Francisco who was retiring. And, and we've been busy ever since. Tell us a little bit about your practice. What kind of cases do you, do you take? What kind do you like to handle? What is the scope of what you do? Primarily, we focus on sexual abuse cases, sexual assault cases, and sexual harassment cases. And my love for helping survivors of sexual harassment stems from 
before uh, law school and at the beginning of college, my first semester in college was the Anita Hill hearings and I was glued to the television. And since that point in time, I've just been um, focused on helping women get through those experiences. After, after that, I went to uh, work for the White House. I was a White House intern um, and I, I happened to be there uh, in 1995, during the 21-day government shutdown, there was another intern who has initials similar to mine who was there at the same time. Oh, that's <laughs> interesting. And then, would that be Monica Lewinsky? Yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> and that was quite a story in and of itself. Uh, actually led, I believe, to uh, President Clinton resigning from the bar in the state of Arkansas. That's correct. And an impeachment. What was it about the experience of being in Washington, D.C., the Capitol, that, that inspired you or that helped you be a better lawyer? Well, every single day I woke up, and whether I was at the White House or uh, I moved on afterwards and worked for two different members of Congress, so whether I was walking the halls of Congress or back at the White House with meetings with the um, Congress people I was working for, I felt inspired and invigorated every single day. There's just something about the energy in D.C., um, folks focused on systemic change. Honestly, when I went to law school, it was because I kept trying to get different jobs, better jobs, bigger jobs, and I was being told time and time again, you need a law degree for that. You need a law degree to do that. You need to you know, know how to understand and analyze the law if you want to write it in that way. So I thought I would go to law school and be back in DC in three years. And actually, this whole plaintiff's practice is kind of a, a tangent, an 18-year tangent. Um, and I fell in love with plaintiff's work, and uh, the, the rest is kind of history. Okay, let, let's talk about uh, your cases. What is it, have you seen a change in how, whether it be sexual harassment, let's, let's talk about sexual harassment primarily, in, in the employment, in the workplace, have you seen a change how people view those cases today? And if so, why? Absolutely. And there was a sea change when the Me Too movement broke. We started to see uh, a societal um, pendulum shift uh, with the Bill Cosby case when that came uh, down and, and they started to prosecute and people came forward. And then we saw what happened with Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly. And then just a few months later, the scandal with Harvey Weinstein broke. And there was a huge sea change um, for society. Those of us who've been doing these cases, this Me Too work for decades now, have always known these cases are real and folks are harmed and it changed their life. But now we were walking into court and, and talking to juries with a little bit of the assumption that this could be true. Before, if you had a he said, she said case, it was almost impossible um, outside of other corroborating evidence to get a jury to really wrap their head around a sexual assault or a sexual harassment case. Um, but it, it's almost like the movement gave credibility and credence to the survivors when they finally came forward to tell their story. Do, do you think that uh, people now view this problem as something that's getting better, getting worse? What would you say? 
I think that it depends on folks' political persuasions and, and their uh, general ideas about the world. I really felt like the Me Too movement was progressing in a certain way with a certain trajectory. And then we had the Kavanaugh hearings and things really changed. Um, how, how do you think they changed? Well, I think that there was a huge backlash um, against survivors and women and, and men who came forward. There was the real, an argument that's existed since the beginning of time when these cases started to come to the forefront, which is you're just trying to get money, you're just trying to get publicity, you're gonna ruin his career. Uh, we saw a lot of activity on social media after the Kavanaugh hearing and lots of newspaper coverage about mothers saying, what about my son? I don't want my son to be accused of this, so these women should be careful and cautious and maybe not come forward. There's a lot of criticism. Do, do you think things in the workplace are changing? I do, I do. But at the same time, um, we still get calls all day, every day, and I hear stories that are horrific. And you think, you know, it's been a decade now since managers have to undergo sexual harassment training, and it's in the media all the time. People should know better. Um, but the bottom line is there are always going to be people who abuse their power and predators. And what we do know is people who want to abuse their power find positions where they can do so, and predators um, look for work environments where they have folks that they can prey on. I just had to do a two and a half hour, I think, training watching the video and it was required by law, certain levels of uh, employment. And to me, it seemed like a lot of the stuff was pretty self-evident. And I wonder, is, does that help? Or is the people that have issues with it, doesn't matter what training you give them, they're gonna still do what they're gonna do. Yeah, it doesn't matter what training you give them. Part of what happens, and the reason why we take on institutional cases is because there are those folks out there who do engage in misconduct and inappropriate behavior. And when it's called to their attention or the attention of their supervisors, there's no effective training that happens with them. I, I agree with you. I've, I've seen those, the key videos and, and, you know, lawyers coming into big institutions and they do the training time and time again. And the examples are so ridiculous and over the top that they are obvious. Where what should be trained is how third-party corroborators, how witnesses can come forward in a safe way and explain what they've seen happen. Because perps aren't going to tattle on themselves, and sometimes the, the, the victims uh, don't have the strength or the concern about losing their jobs. So we really have to focus on the efficacy of these training videos and also empowering other people to come forward and report. I mean, you know, we all know that you, you can't retaliate against someone for reporting what they believe is some violation of law or public policy. However, people are still very afraid, it seems to me, to come forward because they're worried they're going to get retaliated against. How, how do we go about fixing that? Well, my knee-jerk reaction is to say we need to start trying more cases like this to get them out into the public, to get verdicts, so, so the institutions understand the threats that are out there. We have a number of cases against politicians, political bodies, professional athletes, um, folks who should know better 
and that when other people come forward and say, hey, I saw Senator so-and-so do X, Y, and Z, the institution uh, closes itself off, retaliates, and doesn't change because they're interested in continuing to protect their own power. And when folks come forward in those kinds of environments, they are literally told you're disloyal and it's, they get blacklisted and it's really difficult for them to continue to work in their um, chosen field. Now, you talked about politics. You, obviously, you worked in Washington, D.C., which is a very vibrant, uh, energized city. Is that something that you're really interested in politics? I love politics. I did my, my first precinct walks when I was 16. The first presidential campaign that I was involved in as a volunteer was President Clinton's first campaign. And um, my time in D.C., I feel like I learned more uh, in those three and a half years than I did in law school. And, and what I love about being a plaintiff's lawyer is I get to continue to be involved in the political process by helping raise money for good pro-consumer candidates and uh, lobby the folks in Sacramento and D.C. Well, let's talk about the uh, trial lawyer organizations, associations. I know you're involved in many of them. You're very active. You're the president-elect of the Consumer Attorneys of California, which how many members are there of the Consumer Attorneys? Over 3,600. That's uh, of the, throughout the state of California. There's right. 3,600 members. They have a annual convention. They're involved. T tell us what's involved. Or forget that. Why is it important for young lawyers to get involved in associations like the Consumer Attorneys of California, the AAJ, the local trial lawyer groups? Why is that important to someone that wants to do the work that you do? Well, there's two reasons. The first of which is it provides a community, it provides support, it provides a sense of mentorship, and there's a ton of education where all these new lawyers can learn best practices. There's nothing better than having a bad day in court and being able to go to an event where you're surrounded by trial lawyers who have been there, they know what it feels like um, to get a bad MSJ ruling or have a tough day at depot. Um, the law can be isolating, especially for newer attorneys or solos, but it's meant to be collaborative and being involved in these trial lawyer communities help provide that type of environment. The other reason is, if you think of the trial lawyer organizations like unions, there's power in numbers. And we have a full-time job making sure we kill horrible legislation that would cut our fees, um, dismantle practice areas, get rid of causes of action. And if we're not involved as dues-paying members, uh, the people in Sacramento who fight for our rights as consumer attorneys and the rights of our clients every single day aren't going to be able to do their job. So you have the legislation piece, you have the education piece. There's also important things that, that go on. Tell us the other things that the trial lawyers do. Well, the other thing they do is we help build a bench. We help build a bench of uh, politicians, nurturing the relationships, explaining our issues from the time they're in the city council or board of supervisors until they go on. Right now, we're, we're watching uh, one of our own uh, Kamala Harris run for president of the United States. And so these relationships are very, very important. Our relationship with the governor is extraordinarily important. Um, and it's that collective that allows us to do that. 
Um, the other thing is it provides uh, opportunities, like I know the trial lawyers in Los Angeles have a great charity organization and it allows folks the ability to give back and, uh, to their community. AHA, the National Trial Lawyers, also have um, events associated with their convention where you can go out and help with a Habitat for Humanity build um, or work at a, a food bank um, to help give back to society. So what does it entail when you're gonna be the president of a large state trial or organization? Do you just all of a sudden one day decide you wanna be the president and you get elected or what's the process? It's quite a long ladder. As a matter of fact, CAOC has a six year ladder. So traditionally what happens is folks get involved at the board of governor level. Um, when we see talent uh, and interest, we help rise people up out of the board of governor positions and um, have them work on one of the committees as a leader or a board member. Eventually they can run for um, the executive committee, which includes non-officer positions. And then we have six officer positions, including the president-elect and the president. Um, but it's it's a time commitment. <laughs> it, it seems like it. I mean, once you, you know, I know there's a lot of meetings, a lot of phone calls. But once you get into the leadership, uh, you travel to Sacramento quite often, don't you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that starts depending on how involved folks want to be. But I'm so close to Sacramento, and I care so passionately about what CAOC does, and and all of the work that still remains for it to do. I'm there as much as possible, um, whether it was testifying, uh, helping with meetings, meeting with defense counsel, which we do as an organization to try and get uh, legislation for both plaintiffs and defense counsel to improve the practice for everyone. Um, there's a variety of things that, that we need to do. Yeah. How much time of your practice does it take up? A lot. <laughs> I, I used to track my, I still track all of my time because I think it's a good business practice, but I used to track my CAOC time and frankly I stopped doing it about a year ago because uh, it was so much time that it was, uh, it became overwhelming. So it, it's a lot of time, but it's worth it. So as a woman, you know, going to court, do you think that there's disadvantages? Are there advantages? What's it like to be a woman going in front of a, a judge, usually a male, usually probably the defense lawyers against your males? What, what's it like? It's uh, overwhelming and also empowering. Um, every day I wake up and I think, how can I, like a star liberty, burn down the patriarchy? That's really my goal <laughs> on a daily basis. And so it depends on the judge. It depends on opposing counsel. I think that um, once you have kind of proven yourself and you have the trust of the judge, they're going to listen to you. But I have been just like every uh, one of my sisters in law have uh, been asked if I was the court reporter. I've been told I can't go into the galley because that's only for lawyers. Uh, I was called you people once by a judge in Sonoma County. Um, you know, it, it happens all the time. It, it invigorates me. It makes me want to be a better lawyer. I've made a career out of being underestimated. Um, but, you know, I, I hope someday things will change. I'm going to be only the sixth female president of CAOC in almost 60 years. And I can't wait until there's so many women or lawyers that are diverse in some way that have served at the helm of this organization that we don't have to count anymore 
what number they are. Well, it's, it seems to me that the statistics show that today more women are going to law school than men. What, what do you think about that? Why is that? Well, and that's been the case since um, I graduated from law school almost 19 years ago. So more women are going, more women are graduating. But what we see happening is more women are leaving the law because it's either not conducive um, to the lifestyle choices that they're making or they feel disenfranchised and excluded. Um, so what we have to do is make more room at the table for anyone who wants to be there. We don't want talent to be walking away from the law because of their gender, ethnicity, or whatever diverse characteristic they might have. You, I saw a quote uh, from you with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think it's on your website. Is she one of the inspirations or influential people that you look up to in your, in your practice, in your Absolutely. life? In my life? In my practice, absolutely. She has been quietly speaking truth to power and fighting the good fight for decades now. She's a force to be reckoned with. And the thing that I appreciate so much about her and admire about her is her steely calm and her composure and um, how elegant she is when she's arguing really difficult uh, concepts for many to, to grasp and understand. I think she's an inspiration for everyone. Are there other people that have inspired you that you look up to that have been influential to you in your life and career? I think that, you know, honestly, any woman who has broken a mold in any sort of way, the women who just won the national soccer championship, the World Cup. World those, Cup. The World Cup. <laughs> those women inspire me. Women who, my clients who I see every day, who regardless of how afraid of reporting a rape that they experience are, they still do it. So anyone who can kind of dig deep down, figure out who they are, be afraid of what may come and still take whatever action it is, they inspire me too. One other thing, I want to close with this. You're so busy, you're traveling all over the country, all over the state. How is it that you get some balance in your life that you don't go crazy? Because that can happen in the legal profession. You get so myopic and it just can overtake your law. And I think what's the saying that the, the law is a mistress to us all or something like that? A jealous mistress. A jealous, how do you deal with that? Well, it takes effort. I. Um, try to do my best to do whatever self-care I feel like I need. So whether it's spending time with friends and family, going for hikes with my dogs, letting myself sleep in one day, you know, it, it's the little things in life. And really just remembering to have a practice of gratitude. You know, I feel lucky to be able to do what I'm doing. I feel invigorated by the fights that I fight. So it, that helps me get up uh, and, and keep going. And I'm, I'm going to try to leave this practice and the professional world for women uh, in a better place than I, I found it. So whatever. Well, I, I think you're making it better for all your clients and all of us. And we're so grateful for all that you do and all that you're going to do as a great president, which we know you're going to be. And we want to thank you for being here. And we look forward to having you back again. So good luck, Micah Star Liberty. Thank you so much.